Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 37 today. And you'll remember, uh, prior to last week, we, have Dave, we had uh, Dave Guzik here as a guest speaker. Was that wonderful? That was fabulous. Wonderful man of God. Tremendous Bible teacher. Hero of mine. But Mark. Did I say Matthew? Lord have mercy. Mark, chapter 12. I said Matthew? Lord have mercy on you, Marilyn. <laughs> Hello. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Uh, prior to Dave Guzik being here, we were in Mark chapter 12 observing the Passion Week. It's the Passion Week now of the Christ. It is the week before the cross. And the text that we're looking at today happens presumably the day before he goes to the cross. So this may be Thursday, possibly Wednesday of the Passion Week. And since his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus has been going into the temple every day, and there he's been teaching the people, and he's been answering questions. And we've seen through Mark chapter 12 that the religious leaders had quite a few questions for him. We see that they asked him about political things, they have theological questions, and questions concerning religious life. You'll remember that some of the Pharisees and religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay taxes? Israel, of course, was under the occupation of the Roman government at the time. And this was a touchy question. There were some represent, representatives there from the Roman government. And if Jesus had said in answering, should we pay taxes? If he had said no, then he would be guilty of treason against Caesar. If he had said, yes, you should pay taxes, then they would consider him guilty of treason against Israel. And so Jesus, being so wise because he is God, said, give me a coin. He took the coin and he said, whose picture is on this coin? And whose inscription is this? And the crowd said, well, it's Caesar. And he said, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But render unto God that which is God's. And every mouth was shut. Yeah, pay your taxes. The United States of America, they made the money. Give it back to them. But God made you give yourself to him. So he answered the political question. And then came a theological question. Remember, uh, the Sadducees approached him. And they did not believe in life after death. That is why they are sad, you see. And so they asked him, uh, Jesus, how can we know that there is life after death? A resurrection from the dead. And Jesus took them back to the book of Exodus. And he said that in the book of Exodus, God had said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Patriarchs who had died hundreds of years prior. And Jesus' reasoning was, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. If he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that means they have been resurrected from the dead. They are experiencing life after death. Therefore, according to the book of Moses, Exodus, there is life after death. An extremely important historical orthodox Christian doctrine that we hold to as a church. It's called the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. And it says succinctly that... Um, Everyone will experience resurrection from the dead. The righteous, those who have received forgiveness in Jesus Christ, will be resurrected to eternal life. And the wicked, those who have rejected his forgiveness, will be resurrected to judgment. And so Jesus answered that theological question, and we cling to his answer today. 
Then they came with a religious question. A scribe, I think out of a sincere heart, said, Jesus, what is the greatest and foremost commandment? Jesus responded and said, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And in answering that question for the scribe, Jesus laid down what ought to be the preoccupation of the church throughout time. That we, the church of Jesus Christ, are to be about two things. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving others as ourselves. And I'll say it now in front of all of you, that is the vision of this church, Reality Carpinteria. That is what motivates us. That is what we strive and work toward. That is our vision and our mission, to love the Lord God with everything in us and to love our community as ourselves. So Jesus answered in a wonderful way, political, theological, and religious questions. He answered them so well that in the second part of verse 34, it says, and after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And now Jesus begins to ask them a question. He's going to pose it specifically to the scribes. You'll remember that the scribes were those who were responsible for Bible interpretation. Somebody in Israel had a question, what does the Bible mean by thus and so? Or how should I live my life in light of this and that? Or is this biblically permissible? They would go to the scribes. They were sort of the Bible scholars of the day. And like many scholars today, quote unquote, they were in error. And so the Lord says this in verse 35. And Jesus answering began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. David calls him, that is a Messiah, Lord. And so in what sense is he his son? Jesus comes and he says to the scribes, how is it that you teach that the Christ, which is a Greek word for Messiah, how is it that you say the Messiah is the son of David or explicitly merely the son of David? How is it that you say that he is merely a descendant of King David? And what is implied here is, and why don't you say he is more? Now, the Jews at this time and the Jews today believe that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. It's expressed throughout the Old Testament. It's in the book of 2 Samuel. It's in the book of Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos. All of these say that the Messiah would come down through the family line, the bloodline of King David. And the Jews still believe that today. And in that day, these scribes expected the Messiah to be just that and nothing more. They expected Messiah to be a man. We as Christians believe that he is the God-man, that he is fully man, but he is fully God. That is a historical, orthodox view of the deity of Jesus Christ. It has always been that way in the church since its birth. The church has always believed that. It was codified at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, but it believed that from the very beginning. But the Jews at the time, believe that the Messiah would be a man and nothing more. They believed that because Moses had said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, prophesying that there would come a prophet like unto himself that would lead the nation. 
The Jews read that, and they thought that they meant there would come a prophet who would be a man. In fact, when John the Baptist came on the scene in John chapter 1, verse 21, people came up to him and said, Who are you? Are you Elijah? Or are you the prophet? The prophet referring to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. Moses said there would come a prophet like unto myself. But when he said like unto myself, he meant one who was a deliverer of Israel. But they simply thought the Jews in that day and today, Messiah would be a man. If you ask a believing, observing Jew today, has Messiah come? They'll say no. And you'll say, well, what do you expect from Messiah? They will say, first of all, well, Messiah will be a man. Not a God man, not fully God and fully man like you Christians believe, but he will be a man. Secondly, they will say to you, and he will be a political conqueror. He will deliver Israel from any oppressors and he will establish the sovereignty of Israel and it will never be removed. And that was the expectation in the first century as it is today. The Messiah would be a man and he would be primarily a political conqueror. We know that it is true that Messiah will establish the nation of Israel, that he will establish their sovereignty and it will never be removed. That is the millennial kingdom. It's very clear from the scriptures that at his second coming, Jesus will come physically. He will come to Israel, to the Mount of Olives. He will walk onto the Temple Mount. He will reestablish the throne of David, being a bloodline descendant of David. And there he will rule and reign over Israel and over the world during the millennial kingdom. That's his second coming. But look what happened to these Jews, the scribes that Jesus is addressing. They only got half the picture. They didn't take the whole of Scripture. They couldn't see how it fit together. They read the passages about um, Messiah being a man and about him coming to free them from political oppressors, and they thought, well, that's got to be it. Some rabbis saw that there was more. Some rabbis who read Isaiah 53 about he would be pierced through for our transgressions, who read Psalm 22, which has always been understood as a messianic psalm, who read the book of Zechariah, who saw other passages pointing to the fact that he won't be a conqueror. He'll be a suffering servant. Isaiah 42 says explicitly in the first four verses about the Messiah that he would be a suffering servant. But they weren't in their mind able to reconcile those two theological ideas. How can he come as a conquering king and yet a suffering servant? Daniel says that the Son of Man, which is where that phrase comes from for Jesus, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says that the Son of Man would come and he would receive the kingdom in glory. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Behold, Israel, your king comes lowly, humble, mounted on a donkey. They said, how is Messiah going to come humble on a donkey and yet come as a conquering king? They couldn't reconcile the two. They missed that there were two comings. We now, having the rest of the book, thank you, Lord, understand that there are two comings. He came first as a suffering servant to die for the sins of the world. He will come back as the conquering king to judge the sins of the world. But you see, because they didn't, listen now, because they didn't take the whole of Scripture together, they only got half the picture and they were in error. A parallel for you and I is predestination predestination. We often read verses in the Bible that clearly say that we were chosen in God through his foreknowledge from before the foundations of the world. 
And then we read other passages in the Bible that clearly point to the fact that we have free will and that whosoever should believe in him will have everlasting life and he will in no way turn away anybody that comes to him for salvation. And so in our minds, we see that the Bible teaches that we are chosen, but that we also have to choose Jesus, that we have free will. And we have a hard time reconciling the two, but they are both clearly taught in Scripture. And so what we don't do is neglect one for the other. We don't say, well, it's all predestination. That's, that's Calvinism. Nor do we say, well, it's all free will. That's Arminianism. We're balanced in the middle, not for balance sake, but because the Bible is balanced. Because the Bible teaches both and it makes no apology for both. Where it falls apart for us is our mind can't quite comprehend that. How are we chosen from before the foundations in the world according to the foreknowledge of God, and yet we've also got to choose him? How do those two things interact? And do they interact? How can we be morally responsible for our decision if we were chosen and preordained? Well, clearly that's the case. In the book of Acts, I'll just read it to you. In chapter 2, Peter was preaching his first sermon after Pentecost. And he said this in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man tested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. It says explicitly in the scripture that Jesus was ordained by God to die upon the cross as prophesied in the Old Testament. That it was according to the foreknowledge of God. And yet then Peter says to them, you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. We see here it was the plan of God, but people participated and made a choice in it. Now, are they responsible morally for their choice? Well, I look at the end of the sermon that Peter gave in verse 36, his conclusion. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. You see that? It was God's expressed will. It was chosen. It was foreordained. And yet they participated in it and they were morally responsible for their choice. In the same way, we have been chosen in God before the foundations of the world. But we have to choose to respond to the gospel. And if we reject the gospel, we are morally responsible for that choice. And there are consequences. I know it's hard in our minds. We can't always understand everything about how God works. It's like the Trinity. The Trinity. Who gets the Trinity? God is absolutely one. And yet he is three persons. Not one God manifest in three different modes. Not one God at three different times. One God at all times, but three persons. Wait a minute, how can one be three? Our brain doesn't work like that. We don't understand. We can draw some loose analogies that don't do very well, such as water. Water can be um, liquid. It can be uh, ice, or it could be um, gas, right? What's the gas called? H2O or something? Oh, that's water, vapor. So it could be one of those three things, but that's an imperfect analogy because it isn't all three at once. You understand that God is all three at once. Maybe a better analogy is an egg. 
You have the eggshell, the egg whites, and the egg yolk. The three make up the one, and they're all the egg. Eggshell, egg whites, egg yolk. It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Hard to understand, but explicitly taught in the Bible. If you don't understand something that is taught in the Bible, it does not mean that the Bible is wrong. God says in Isaiah 55, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so his ways are higher than our ways. Aren't you glad that we don't have a God who is easily comprehensible? I can't even get people. I don't even understand people. I'd be so disappointed if I could understand my God. G.K. Chesterton said, if God were simple enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be great enough to meet my needs, nor worthy of my worship. But I'm trying to paint the picture here that the Jews only got half the story about the Messiah. They were teaching at the time that he would simply be man, and now Jesus is challenging that view. And what he's going to show the scribes is that the Messiah is fully man and yet fully God. He's fully man. He's the son of David. He's called the son of man, but he's fully God. He's the son of God. He's the great I am. And he teaches them this by quoting from Psalm 110. And you saw it in verse 36. It says, David said in or by the Holy Spirit, which is here Jesus attesting to the um, authorship of God of the Bible. That the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. According to 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired of God or God breathed. It wasn't written by men. God used their hands, but it is the word of God. Jesus here attests to that. David wrote down, he says, in Psalm 110, which was always esteemed in Judaism to be a messianic psalm. David wrote these words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. Now in that psalm, there are two different words in Hebrew there used for Lord. The first phrase, the Lord, is uh, how we would often say Yahweh. It is what is known as the ineffable name of God. Ineffable, meaning the Jews would never say it. We sometimes um, put it in the characters of our alphabet with a Y, an H, a W, and an H. Sometimes we fill in some uh, vowels and we say, or some other letters and we say Jehovah. Sometimes it's translated that in the Bible. But it is Yahweh. We don't know if that's how you pronounce it because when the Hebrew Bible was originally written, there were no vowels in the Hebrew language. It was what is called an unpointed text. There were no vowels. And they considered that word, it's called the tetragrammatron, those four letters, to be so sacred and so holy the Jews never said it. And so as language developed, and in later translations, vowels were added to the words. People knew in the Hebrew language what vowels to add because people spoke to each other and said words so they knew how they sounded. So they knew if it was an A sound or an E sound or an O sound or an I sound or a U sound. Not so with the ineffable name of God. No Orthodox Jew, no believing Jew would ever say it. And so we took a guess. And so now we say Yahweh. But it could be Yuah. It could be Yahweh. We don't know. Nobody has ever known. But... It is, for sure, a name of God in the Old Testament. The name by which he revealed himself to Moses. And so it says here, Yahweh said to my Lord. Now in Psalm 110, that is a different word, Lord. It is Adon. 
It means master. It is where we get the name for God, Adonai, which means my master, my Lord, Adonai. And so it says here, Yahweh said to Adonai. Uh Uh-oh. God's talking to himself. It's what is called in theology, inter-Trinitarian communication. When Jesus prayed to the Father, that was inter-Trinitarian communication. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. And so then he asks a question in verse 37. David himself calls the Messiah Lord, so in what sense then is he his son? No man calls his son my Lord, Adonai. So Jesus is saying that the Messiah must be more than merely a descendant of David. He must be God in the flesh. This is Jesus making an explicit claim of deity, saying in no uncertain terms that Jesus is God in the flesh. And we're told there in Psalm 110 verse 1, quoted in verse 36, that the Messiah would have two things happening. He would sit at the right hand of Yahweh, He would sit at the right hand of God the Father, and that all his enemies would be brought into submission by God. We know at the second coming, that's going to be the case. Read Revelation chapter 19. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that the Messiah is Lord at one time. But he ascends to the right hand of the Father. We know that concerning the ascension, Mark 16, 19. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Peter said the same thing probably to some of these very religious leaders that Jesus was talking to today in Acts 5.30 and 31. He says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So we're told that Jesus fulfills that prophecy of Psalm 110 verse 1 because he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Also because of the second coming, everything will be in subjection to him. He'll be ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. But two other things from that passage, Acts 5, 30 and 31, two very important ideas theologically. It says there that he is the Savior, and that he is the one who forgives sins. Now, to the Jewish mind, that was intriguing, that the Messiah would be a Savior and that the Messiah would forgive sins. Why? Because those things throughout the Old Testament were only true of God. Isaiah 43, verse 11 says, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. There's no other savior for the world besides God himself. And yet Jesus claimed to be the savior of the world. And many testified to that. The angels speaking to Joseph about the incarnation said in Matthew 121, and Mary will will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for it is he who will save his people from their sins. John the Baptist testified of the same thing in John 1.21 when he spotted Jesus at the Jordan River that day. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Samaritan said the same thing to the woman at the well in John 4.42. This one is indeed the Savior of the world. Mary, after it had been revealed to her 
that she would give birth to Jesus, proclaim that God was her Savior in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. And yet the Bible, in the same book, in the next chapter, in verse 11, declares that Jesus is the Savior. When the angels appeared to the shepherds out in the field that night, they said, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, in the space of a chapter, the Bible declared that God is the Savior and that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord. You understand the Bible teaches explicitly without question that Jesus is God. The Son of God, yes. The third or the second member, excuse me, of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But they are one. That's expressed wonderfully in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It says, go forth into all the world preaching the gospel, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and baptizing them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. No, in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They are one. It's said explicitly in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul says that we should be looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So the Jews had a hard time with Jesus because he claimed to be the Savior of the world, and they knew from Isaiah 43, 11, that only God was the Savior. So that meant that Jesus must have been claiming to be God. There's several instances in the Gospels where they pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy. Not only that, but only God, according to the Old Testament, could forgive sins. Isaiah 43 again, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Listen, not only does the Bible say explicitly that God is the only one who can forgive sins, but it stands to reason logically that God is the only one that can forgive sins. In Psalm 51, David declared, Against thee and thee alone have I sinned, O Lord. All sin is against God. It is logical that if sin is against God, only God can forgive the sin. You see, if you sin against me, Rachel can't forgive you. If you sin against Rachel, I can't forgive you. If you sin against me, I have to forgive you. Our sin is against God, therefore only God can forgive. And yet in Mark chapter 2, there's a paralyzed man, and his friends, God bless their little hearts, they bring him to Jesus, believing that he'll heal them. And the crowd is so intense in Mark chapter 2 that they take him up on the roof, and they rip the roof off the building, and they lower the paralytic down in front of Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus says to you is, my son, because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. In the heart of every Jew, went, whoa. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Who is this guy claiming to be here? Only God alone can forgive sins. Who is this guy from Nazareth claiming to be? It was an explicit claim of deity. And in their hearts, they begin to think, this is blasphemy. And it says in the text in Mark chapter 2 that Jesus knew what was in their hearts because he's God. And so he said to them, why is it that you marvel that I say his sins are forgiven? What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your pallet and walk? Or what is more difficult to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your pallet and walk? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the man, you pick up your pallet and walk and go home. 
and he was healed. Immediately he stood up, he picked up his pallet, and he walked and went home. And Jesus proved his deity and that he had authority to forgive sins, which proves, therefore, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. In the Bible, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you are going to reject the deity of Jesus Christ, which many cults, by the way, in our town do, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the biblical deity of Christ. They believe that he was a God. The Bible doesn't teach that. Mormons don't believe in the deity of Christ. He is God the Father. But it is a historical, orthodox doctrine of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And how those two interact and the interplay between them is difficult for us to understand, but that's what the Bible teaches. Now I want to ask this question. We believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man, but why did God the Son have to become a man to save us? Did you ever ponder that question? I chose my words very carefully. Why did God the Son become a man in order to save us? It wasn't that God the Father decided to become the Son and then become a man. The Bible teaches the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, that he has existed from eternity past, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that all things were created by him and for him, and apart from him, there is nothing in existence. So it's not as though God said, okay, now I'm going to change my mode or my manifestation. I'm going to become the Son of God and become man. It has always been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But why? Why couldn't God the Son just save us from heaven? Why couldn't he accomplish that work from up there? Why did he have to be born of a virgin? Why did he have to drape himself in humanity? I'll explain it to you. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death. What sin pays to you, its payment is death. It costs you, so to speak. The penalty for sin is death, has always been since the beginning. If the penalty for sin is death, then the payment for sin must be a life. And God declares in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, that he has given the blood to us, to humanity, for atonement, because the life is in the blood. Therefore, I have given it to you for atonement. If you drain your veins, you will cease to live. You could put high octane, whatever you want to put in there. You can't live without blood. The life is in the blood. That is why God established blood sacrifices with animals in the Old Testament. The wages of sin is death. What can pay for a debt of death? Only a life. Life is in the blood. Therefore, blood had to be shed in those sacrifices. But it says concerning the sacrifices of the Old Testament in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. The blood that was spilt in the Old Testament of blood of bulls and goats did not take away sin. They made a temporary covering for sin. They didn't satisfy the righteous standard of God. They didn't, stand, they didn't satisfy the wrath or the judgment of God. They put it off until the Messiah would come. Why couldn't the blood of bulls and goats pay for the sin of men? Why was it 
that when John saw Jesus in John 1.21, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Bulls and goats, their blood cannot take them away. They can only make a covering. But behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why couldn't bulls and goats do it? And why could Jesus, God now in the flesh, accomplish it? Because according to the Old Testament, a redeemer of somebody had to be blood-related. In Leviticus chapter 25, we are told that a blood relative could redeem, or the definition, buy someone back from slavery. But it had to be a blood relative. If the bank foreclosed on your land back in that day in Leviticus 25, a blood relative could buy it back. He could redeem it back. It is the setting and the context in the background for the book of Ruth where we see that she was a widow without children and she had to wait for a kinsman redeemer. Someone related to her by blood who could redeem her. That is the Old Testament precedent. That is the way that God set it up. The only one that could redeem any situation or person had to be a blood relative. Now, In the Old Testament, God calls himself the Redeemer of Israel. The studious Jew would read that in the Old Testament and say, wait a minute now. How can God, who is spirit, be our Redeemer? How can he redeem Israel? It's very clear from the scriptures that a Redeemer has to have a blood relationship. How is that possible? The word for Redeemer in the Old Testament is goel. God calls himself the Goel. It has the idea of the kinsman redeemer. It was a mystery to the Jew before the incarnation. But when Jesus came in the flesh, took on the flesh of man and the blood of man, becoming a man, there was now a blood relationship and therefore he and only he could redeem us. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible declares, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin because bulls and goats cannot represent man. Only another man's life could pay for the sin of a man. And so for that reason, for God to redeem us, he had to become a man. But it couldn't just be any man. It had to be a sinless man. Otherwise, he would be paying for his own sin and not the sins of someone else. Therefore, that man had to be God. Because only God is sinless. So to redeem us, God had to become a man. But to be a valid redeemer and to pay for our sins, that man had to be God. Therefore, theologically speaking, Jesus has to be fully God and fully man. If you don't believe that, throw out your Bible. It doesn't make sense. He's holy God and he's holy man. Therefore, he's able to redeem us. He died a substitutionary death in our place, representing us, able to redeem us, God draping himself in humanity. And if you want to know what God is like, study the life of Jesus. I'm always amazed that people talk about Jesus. Every religion talks about Jesus. Did you know that? Whether it's the Hindus or um, Buddhism or Islam or Taoism or uh, unification or whatever it is, they all esteem Jesus at one level or another. But what they all reject is the Bible. 
And yet the Bible stands as the primary historical record of the life and the actions and the sayings about Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, look at the Bible. Why is that significant? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All these religions are looking for God. That's why they exist. They want to connect with God somehow. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 2.9 says that in him, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that he is the exact representation of the glory of God. What is God like? Well, look at what Jesus did in the flesh. Merciful, compassionate, glorious, loving, full of truth, giving himself. It amazes me that God would humble himself to become a man to pay a price for stupid things I did. Philippians chapter 2, last scripture I'll share with you, says it wonderfully. Philippians 2 verse 6 says, Although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to, but rather, verse 7, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. It's absolutely amazing that God would care enough about you and I, that he would drape himself in humanity, that he would be born of a woman, that the God who created everything would allow himself to be in a womb, would empty himself of his place in God, as it says there, and would be born in a manger where animals ate from, where there was saliva and slobber and sick animal things. That he would rest in a manger, that he would cry in a mother's arms, that he would grow up working with his hands like a carpenter, all of this to save you and I, and that he would be rejected by the religious leaders, that he would be beaten, that he would have his beard ripped from his face, that he would be mocked, that he would be spit upon, that he would have the crown of thorns pressed into his skull, that he would have his back ripped wide open with a cat of nine tails, that they would stretch out his arms, nail him to the cross, pull down his legs, nail those to the cross, and there he would die bloody and naked outside the walls of the city as a sign that he was rejected all the while knowing what it meant. It's unbelievable love, people. I don't understand why anybody rejects this love. I don't understand why anyone says, I, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Who else loves you like that? Nobody loves you like that. It is unfathomable. It is unbelievable. It is absolutely brilliant that God figured out a way to redeem us with blood, to be a kinsman redeemer. It's beautiful. Don't reject the forgiveness of God. If you've never received him as your Lord and Savior, all you gotta do is say, God, I'm a sinner. I've been wrong and I see now that you're right. And God, I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me. At the moment you pray that prayer in faith, you don't have to pray it out loud. Prayer is just talking to God. The moment you say that prayer in sincerity from your heart, sincerity from your heart, God hears you and at that moment he forgives you of every sin you have ever committed. He cleanses you of all filthiness and impurity and every wrong thing. 
at that point, he becomes your partner for life. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He walks with you through this life. He begins to transform you from the inside out. He gives to you his joy, which is perfect because he's the creator of all things. He gives to you his peace, which is absolute because he's in control of all things. And when you finally die, you are guaranteed entrance into heaven. Hello? It's like a no-brainer. You blew it. He did all that. God, I pray that if there's anybody in here that hasn't received you as their Lord and Savior, that right now they would recognize you. That God, you draped yourself in humanity. You came to save us. Right now they would recognize that they are sinners, that they've blown it, they've been wrong, but you love them nonetheless. You made them, you want them to know you, you want them to be happy, to have eternal life, to be blessed in every way. You want to cleanse them of all that dirty stuff. Remove their guilt and their shame. If you want that this morning, as I said, it's just a simple prayer where in your heart you say, God, I'm a sinner, but I see now that you, God, are my Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Save me. Give me new life. I don't understand all of it, but God, I want it. I believe it. Come and be my Lord, whatever that means. Come and live in my heart, whatever that looks like. I just know that you are my God and I need you, so forgive me. The Bible says that if you just prayed that prayer, that it is so important to God, it is so wonderful to him, that the angels who are in God's presence around his throne in heaven, begin to rejoice. And it's way louder than this. Let me just say one last thing now that we're all Christians in this room. Because Jesus Christ is God, it means for you, Christian, that he is able to meet your every need. It means for you that he is sufficient for all things. It means that you can and should be totally satisfied in him. Therefore, if you've been looking for fulfillment in anything else, repent. It's wrong. You'll never find it there. If you've been looking for satisfaction in a relationship with another person, you'll never be satisfied with a person if you can't be satisfied with God, who is perfect. You need to repent. You need to allow God to be your satisfaction, your joy, your strength, your everything. He is God. He wants to be everything for you. Because Jesus Christ is God, it means that he alone is worthy of our adoration, our worship, our preoccupation, our obsession. Christians, God is so wonderful and he's done such great things for us. We ought to be obsessed with God. When we wake up in the morning, I'm just going to tell you, like the psalmist, he ought to be the first thing on our mind. He ought to be the last thing on our mind when we go to bed. And when we wake up in the middle of the night, we ought to think, Lord, he's that wonderful. He's that good. He is the only one that should preoccupy and obsess you. If it's anyone other than him, you've got things wrong. Priorities are out of whack. You need to put him back on the throne today. You need to put God on the throne of your life. If there's a person in that spot, you are sure to disappoint yourself and them. They can't be God for you. They're not made to be. They'll never live up to it. Don't put anybody above God. 
If you've put a religious leader in that place, if your hope and your joy and your sense of self-worth is found in any pastor or leader today, repent. They are all, including me, sinful men. They're just like you. They've been given a role in the body of Christ and they're doing their best to walk with Jesus. But if you assign some overly exaggerated value to them other than just another sinner who's serving the Lord, you are setting yourself up for destruction. They will fail you every time. This community, Carpinteria, has a history of pastors who have failed morally. There's a great move of God here in the early 70s. The pastor had a moral failure. And many people who were in the church at that time had their faith shipwrecked. Now, the pastor is to blame for his moral failure, but he is not to blame for their shipwrecked faith. They put too much in a man. They looked too much to a man. They invested too much in him. Is there anybody in your life that if they were to disappoint you and do the most heinous thing you could imagine, that it would shipwreck your faith and your belief in God? Then repent today. God is the only one who is sinless. He's the only one who will satisfy you. He is the only one in whom you should place your hope and your trust and your joy and your adoration. He's the only one who's worthy. No man is worthy of that. No man can live up to that. That's why Jesus became a man, so that we could behold him in the flesh. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten Son of God. He stepped down into darkness to love you and I. Don't let anything else be on the throne, amen?